The Fanboy, Episode 77. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 77th edition of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, personally, I'm pretty tired. It's been a long week for your boy here, because uh, if you recall, I got you episode 76 a couple days late, but that meant recording it in the wee hours of Monday morning at midnight on Sunday. And then I capped off my Monday by recording the Revengers podcast with Brett and Vanessa, which, by the way, you guys should totally be checking out if you haven't as of yet, because um, we're really kind of letting our sense of humor kind of come to the forefront a little more. We're having a little more fun with it. The show is 32 episodes in, and we're still kind of finding our voice, and I'm really kind of enjoying the way it's evolving and what where, where we're headed with it. So if you haven't checked that out yet, I strongly suggest you do. But either way, you know, Monday was, uh, you know, kind of a double feature of me recording different episodes of different podcasts. And now here I am on Friday recording another The Fanboy for you. And I've got to try to conserve some energy for next week because next week's going to be a killer. And truth be told, you know, full disclosure, I'm kind of anxious about next week. So just between you and I, I'm kind of stressed out about next week. Because, um, you know, Monday night is my wife's birthday. And even though we're celebrating over the weekend, you know, on Saturday night, you know, it's still, it's the actual birth date. So I got to do something, which probably means, by the way, that I'm going to have to either sit out episode 33 of the Revengers, or we're going to have to find an alternate night for it. Some sort of monkey business is going to have to happen there with the Revengers because uh, just the way my week has lined up. So Monday is my wife's birthday. Tuesday, I have my final band practice before my band's big return show on Saturday. By the way, you're going to hear weird noises during this because my neighbor's cleaning people are upstairs. And apparently the way they clean my neighbor's apartment is by bowling on their hardwood floors. I don't know what they're doing up there, but they're very loud. And they seem to be rearranging things all the time and sliding furniture around the room. So I apologize for whatever weird ambient noise you hear on this week's episode, but not much I could do about it. Either way. Uh, so yeah, Tuesday's band practice. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I've got work events because a number of people are throwing Halloween parties and, you know, it, it's that strange sort of time of year where I'm DJing even on weeknights where, you know, where, where quote unquote my day job requires me for more than just the weekend. So essentially, I have something to do all five weeknights next week, and that all leads to Saturday when we have our Revengers watch party for Halloween, which, by the way, if you still want to participate in, please, you know, there's still time to do so. Shoot me an email, mfr at revengeofthefans.com. If you are a New York area listener or supporter of the site or whatever, and you're interested in Halloween, you can come watch it with myself and a number of other RTF contributors and podcasters. And it's going to be a very, very fun night. Um, I've already sold a bunch of tickets and I just, I can't wait for it, but that day is going to be, you know, it's, it's going to be right towards the, the, the final leg of my marathon next week, because essentially 
And we're going to see that movie at 7. And then at 11 o'clock at night, I got to get on stage and sing and dance and jump around and put on a show for you guys. And I'm going to be running on fumes then too. So I have a feeling that this episode is perhaps not going to be the longest one I've ever done. So, you know, why don't we just go ahead and get right on into it, shall we? So I kind of want to talk to you guys a little bit about some interesting things I found out last night uh, with regard to the the cast of uh, Justice League. Uh, I kind of like uh, hesitate to bring it up because I know for some of you, you're sick of talking about Justice League. The movie came out almost a year ago and a number of you are ready to move on and turn the page and not talk about the past anymore. And trust me, I'm with you. I really am. Uh, and that's why some of what I've learned, actually pretty much 90% of what I learned, I'm going to keep to myself. Uh, I'm going to save it for an eventual book that, you know, for those of you who've been following me since my Latino review days, um, you know, I, I, I've discussed wanting to write a book about DC on film and the idea that I have for it, for what time frame it would cover and everything is really kind of coming into fruition. It's coming, you know, I'm starting to see more and more what this book is going to be as more and more stories come out that I'm just like, oh, that's going in the book and that's going in the book. And this is going to make a lot of sense now when you combine this. Like, I'm starting to see the pieces fall into place. So this book is... Uh, it's feeling more like a realistic possibility than at any other time uh, prior to now, really. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about what I what I discovered yesterday, just kind of the tip of the iceberg, because, you know, I don't want to have you, you know, have some of you reassess and reevaluate how you feel about the the other, you know, the rest of the cast, you know, everyone, you know, um, Henry, Gal, Ray, Ezra, Ben, who do I, Jason, you know, I, I don't want, I don't necessarily want to spin all that on on its head quite just yet, but I will talk about the Ben Affleck aspect since he is a frequent subject, and the where he fits into this whole puzzle piece. I find really interesting, and it does shed some light on where all this desire for him to leave came from. Because that's always kind of been the big question, right? You know, he he came on very strong. Uh, he was You could tell he was very motivated for Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. And then somewhere along the way, he like, you know, to quote wrestling, to quote Shawn Michaels, uh, who's coming out of retirement. What? Anyway, um, yeah, he lost his smile. Ben Affleck seemingly lost his smile when it came to playing Batman and continuing on in this very iconic role that so many of us were excited to see where he went with it. And I think I found out one of the big things, one of the one of the areas where he just kind of like stopped caring, because that was one of the big things, right, for a lot of you who saw Justice League, including at the uh, the very first ever watch party I ever organized for Justice League last year. Aaron Verola, who now has his own podcast, The Fanboy Garage with Chris Lasanti, you know, he's the one who pointed out that this was the most useless Batman since Batman and Robin. He reminded him of, the, you know, the George Clooney Batman, who was just kind of there to, like, make quips and be cute and just kind of, like, you know, just kind of uh, be an ineffectual Batman at best. Um, Batman in name only, shall we say. So, 
Check it out, y'all. Here's a little bochinche, okay? So apparently, when the studio was looking into doing all of its changes to Justice League and kind of overhauling the overall direction for where they were going with these films, this deeply bothered Ben Affleck because uh, Mr. Affleck had bought in hardcore, hook, line, and sinker into Snyder's vision. In fact, when he signed on to take the role of Batman and, and appear in X amount of films in his contract, it was all sort of, you know, keeping in mind what this overall game plan was, what the roadmap was that Snyder laid out for him. That's really what appealed to him, okay? So when the studio stepped up, and started trying to tweaks and he saw what they did with Batman v Superman where they cut off a half hour and all of a sudden the writing was on the wall of what they were going to do with Justice League with new writers and trying to overhaul things kind of on the fly. That didn't sit well with Affleck. Affleck, you got to understand, he's he's old school, even though we still kind of, I mean, maybe I do. I still consider him part of the new school. To me, he's still that new guy who popped up in like 97 with Matt Damon for, you know, um, for writing... Goodwill hunting and winning the Oscar for that, you know. So in my mind, he's still kind of new, but really he's kind of old school. He's old. He, he that was already 21 years ago. And from his Hollywood filmmaking sensibility, you know, the director is the king. The director is the king of the castle. The buck stops there. He calls the shots on his own set. He gets final cut of his film. He is, you know, he's the the guy who's in control of what's happening. He's not about this new thing now where the studios like to come in and meddle and you have a bunch of guys with suits giving you studio notes and saying, here's how you should do it, or we want you to change the third act, or we want you to rethink this, or can you re-edit this, we want to make sure it's PG-13, and this was our... Like, he doesn't like all that tinkering stuff. That's not what he's about. That's not how Warner Brothers handled him on his first few movies there. You know, remember, Warner Brothers' big thing has always been how filmmaker-driven they are. They've always just kind of been like, okay, here's your budget, here are the resources you need, here's the, you know, the, the, the production timeline we need you to try to stick to. But in general, go make your movie your way. That's always kind of a Warner Brothers thing. And, you know, Ben Affleck has had, had grown accustomed to that sort of treatment. So when they started trying to meddle on, you know, BVS and especially with Justice League and essentially kind of like usurp you know, Zack Snyder and, and sap him of his power, Affleck went to bat for Mr. Snyder. He wanted to stick with the plan. He wanted to keep the existing script that Terrio had worked on for Justice League. He was very much on board and he went to bat for Snyder and for the Justice League production. But then, you know, he ultimately lost that battle. And what's interesting though, is aside from the fact that, you know, he supported Snyder, it's not cut and dry really what this did for their relationship. Because part of what I heard was he was very disappointed with the fact that Snyder sort of turned the other cheek. You know, Affleck went and you know, put it, stuck his neck out for Mr. Snyder to try to preserve his vision. And apparently from Affleck's vantage point, Snyder kind of just took everything way too in stride. As we've always said, and I've always given him credit for, Snyder was a real, you know, team player. He really kind of just 
you know, rolled with the punches. He kind of considered it a collaborative affair. And he decided that he wasn't going to make a big stink. He wasn't going to put his foot down. He wasn't going to go to war with the studio. He kind of maybe on some level even understood what their concerns were. I don't know. That, that part is just me speculating. But apparently, you know, from what I was told by a source who I trust, um, you know, Affleck was said to be notably disappointed with the fact that Snyder didn't put up more of a fight. And that he just kind of went along with it and kind of allowed the studio to, you know, steal Justice League right out from under him and to completely alter what his original vision had been. That rubbed Affleck the wrong way and is one of many reasons why he just sort of checked out on the process of making Justice League. Where it was just like, you know what, you know, if, if Zack doesn't care, I don't care anymore either. You know, and, and that kind of explains some of his attitude in filming that and kind of why he seemed almost at times sort of less than enthusiastic about being on that promotional tour because he just kind of stopped caring as soon as he realized that Snyder kind of let this go. And of course, Snyder had more in play. You know, Snyder had the awful tragedy that occurred in early 2017 where his daughter committed suicide. And, you know, that's ultimately, I think, part of what kind of like with the straw that broke the camel's back. Snyder ultimately ultimately decided, you know, I've got enough going on. There's bigger fish to fry here. There's more important priorities I have in my life. If you guys want to just take this movie and, and redo it and do whatever you want to do, just go for it. You know, I, I, he kind of washed his hands with it for the time being around, you know, late winter into the spring of 2017. So, you know, so it wasn't just a matter of like, he didn't really care anymore, but you know, it just, there just, there was no fight left in him. And according to what I've heard, Affleck never felt like there was enough fight to begin with. He just kind of felt like Snyder, you know, let them do this to him. And that kind of, it's apparently one of the main reasons that he just became so sort of disenchanted with DC Entertainment. So, you know, I, I only reason I bring this up is because it does sort of, you know, feed into this whole Affleck thing, this whole mystery of why he wanted to leave. And hopefully that was interesting for you guys to hear because it was very interesting for me to hear. Uh, just sort of, you know, it's interesting because at first you want to go, oh, so that must mean that, you know, he's fully on board with Snyder and the two of them are, you know, friends and allies. But apparently it's not quite that clear because Affleck lost a fair amount of respect for him uh, when he saw how easily Snyder just sort of relinquished his film. So uh, there you go. I thought you guys would find that interesting. Hope you do. Um, and by the way, when, when I think about Justice League, you know, and I'm going to change the subject now for those of you who are sick of talking about a nearly year-old movie. Um, when I think about Justice League, you know, the person who got it the worst is Ray Fisher. You know, it's really kind of like hard to see what happened to him. You know, some, some new quotes came out this week where he was talking about, you know, how the fact that Snyder had filmed enough footage for Justice League that it could have been two movies based on just what he filmed. And that by the end of that, you know, the, the end of Justice League, the end of this saga, but wow, they're getting even louder up there. Sorry about that. Um, they seem to be vacuuming inside the soul of the house. But anyway, um, yeah, so, you know, by the end of, of what Snyder was planning, like Cyborg was going to be like, you know, the, he, he presented it as the strongest metahuman of them all. And we'd also heard last year in the lead up to the film that the way Snyder had sort of structured the story, you know, Cyborg was almost going to be the heart and soul of the film. 
And that's got to be laughable to anyone who's seen the theatrical cut because he's totally like barely even a second or third banana. He's given so little, you know, focus, so little emphasis that you, you'd almost be forgiven for forgetting Cyborg was in the movie. And that's not a knock on, on Fisher. You know, it's not his fault. But the way that theatrical cut treated Cyborg, he was a total afterthought. So when you think about people, you know, when you think about people affected by what happened there, you know, listen, at the end of the day, Snyder got paid. He got his paycheck. He got to make a couple of DC movies and he's moving on to his next stuff. Um, and everyone else, you know, Jason's getting the Aquaman movie and Wonder Woman's getting Wonder Woman 1984. And Ezra is still presumably still getting his Flash movie. You know, it, it came out. Uh, earlier this week or late last week that, you know, the, the production has been delayed, as I've been alluding to on previous episodes of this show. I knew something was up. And, you know, now we know that they have indeed delayed it because the script ne still needs a little more tweaking. I'm terribly sorry about the sound upstairs. I actually had to delay the recording of this podcast just to try to wait till it was over. And uh, this has been the most thorough cleaning my neighbors have ever had in their entire lives, apparently. So I'm very sorry for the ambient noise, and I'm going to try my best not to be distracted by it any further. But, um, but, yeah, yeah, but when you think about everyone, you know, it seems like Fisher got the real raw deal here in terms of where they were hoping to go with his character to ultimately now I'd be shocked if he ever gets that solo movie. As I've always said... I've maintained it from the original podcast I was on, the Lost Fanboys podcast, straight up to now. You know, I don't think we're ever seeing that cyborg solo. So, you know, my heart goes out to Mr. Fisher for the fact that, you know, he had this amazing thing dangled in front of him. He filmed all kinds of stuff. He was probably feeling super confident about what this was going to do for his career and everything. And now, you know, it's kind of all up in the air and who knows if, if we'll ever see him in the role again. So just kind of my heart goes out to Fisher because uh, that's, you know, that's that's not easy stuff to deal with. Um, and uh, also check it out. I, uh, I finally got to watch The Death of Superman, the animated series, uh, the animated movie that everyone was telling me about. And now I totally get why you guys kept bringing up that I have to see it because so much about that movie, uh, the way the, the, the battle with Doomsday plays out is almost exactly what I've described as my hope or my wish was for Man of Steel. You know, the way that that battle takes place between him and Doomsday, where even amidst this crazy, colossal, dramatic, intense battle of life and death, we still see Superman amidst it all trying to save individual lives. And he has this beautiful moment. It really put a lump in my throat where they're fighting on the bridge and at some point he knocks Doomsday away and he helps this kid who's like about to be crushed under some rubble. And here he is, here's Superman, he's bleeding, his costume's all tattered. He looks like everything is about to, you know, come to a very uh, uneasy end, which as we know it will. And he's got a grin on his face. And, he, and he, he holds the boy and he says, you know, now go back to your mom, son, everything's gonna be okay. And the boy hugs him and he, you know, like those little moments to me are what was missing. That's, that's the sort of stuff that, you know, that's, that, 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 that to me is what makes Superman special. You know, it's, it's never been about how hard he hits things. It's always been about how much he cares about each individual life, about the way that he just cares so much 
about us and to when he's dealing with other humans to try to be comforting, to try to be a calming voice, to try to be a great example of hope, to give them hope in a time that seems scary and desperate. You know, that's what Superman does best. So those little moments where in the middle of fighting Doomsday, he's ripping car roofs off so people who are trapped inside their vehicles can get out. And he's still finding the time to, to do those little low-level saves amidst this insane thing. Like that, to me, is Superman. That is what makes the character special. And Death of Superman, to me, was, I thought, a phenomenal movie. If you haven't seen it yet, you know, definitely check it out. At first, it, it took me a little bit. I'll admit it took me a little bit to get into it because the animation style is not really my thing. I don't know what it was. It just took me a little bit. It felt almost, it looks almost like an anime. And on top of that, they have him in like the new 52 costume with the no trunks and the collar. And, you know, I was just, I was just kind of thrown off, you know. And on top of that, I was also thrown off by the way it doesn't really adapt the book so much. You know what I mean? It's, it's definitely like its own thing. And it's really cool for what it is, but at first I was a little bit thrown off. So I would say for like the first 15 minutes, I was a little thrown off by the art style, and I was a little thrown off by the fact that it wasn't really a direct adaptation of the book. But once I got past those things, I found a really beautiful Superman story, and Peter Tomasi and the, you know, the directors, they really did a good job of, of hitting the point home of, of who Superman is, what makes him special, what you know what sort of superhero landscape works best for him to tell his story the right way and you know it, it kind of got me thinking by the way it got me thinking about what the next superman films should be when they eventually get to them tonally speaking because you know i've been watching these animated movies now right i saw what was the other one that i saw two weeks ago superman versus the elite and now this one with both of these movies Part of what makes them special and part of what makes them really good Superman stories is the world that they're set in. They're set in sort of fantastical, sort of larger than life situations. You know, you have, you know, you have gangs in mech suits, freaking robbing banks. Like it's not realistic. You know what I mean? It's not like a real world setting. You have Superman fighting giant robot insects in the middle of the street in some third world nation. And this sort of stuff is just okay. It's just sort of accepted. You know what I mean? It's like a heightened reality where we're in. And you notice like in the big fights, especially in Death of Superman, there are no civilians on the streets. It's just empty streets. It's basically just a backdrop for Superman to knock people through buildings so you're not worrying about civilians and innocent lives. You're just watching the spectacle of Superman fight a, a giant creature. And it's got me wondering, I'm thinking about all this stuff because, you know, I know we all loved man of steel's aesthetic the way it was kind of like you know what would happen if this were real what would happen if a flying alien showed up how would earth really respond to this you know and it had a very sort of grounded real world aesthetic and that was beautiful i loved that for the time you know that that aesthetic has never been part of what worried me has never been part of my qualms about that film but now that i'm watching these animated films that who that, that seem to work so well I'm wondering if for the next branch of Superman movies, when we eventually get to it, freaking years from now, apparently. Um, yeah, I wonder if they should sort of lean into that a little bit, embrace it, go a little bigger. Because even if you, if you think about 
like the, the the first two Superman movies with Christopher Reeve, you know, which are part of, you know, I don't even talk about three and four. You know, everyone kind of forgets about three and four, and that's probably for the best. But for Superman one and two, even those, as sort of campy as they are at times, um, you know, they also try to embrace re reality to an extent. It does have a little bit of that, you know, if Superman were in the real world, how would people react? I mean, and not even necessarily that, but like, like who does he fight in the first movie? He basically fights a natural disaster. It's a very sort of relatable, very sort of, you know, terrestrial threat. You know, a nuclear bomb goes off on the San Andreas Fault, and we watch Superman deal with a, you know, a, a series of natural disasters, and he's saving lives, and that's what he does. It's a very sort of normal, naturalistic threat. He's, it's not an alien invasion. He's not fighting some mystical beast. You know, in general, you know, it, it was sort of grounded in the way it approached Superman. And then even in part two, when he with the Kryptonians, you know, it was very self-contained. It was those three Kryptonians. It wasn't part of some huge thing. And in general, it was somewhat grounded. It didn't necessarily lean into all of the larger-than-life fantasy that is the Superman mythology, or that it could be. So in theory, you know, we haven't really gotten a great Superman movie that goes that that really is like a comic book come to life. We always kind of put Superman in a context where it's like real world. And, you know, Richard Donner had the whole verisimilitude. And if you look at Man of Steel and BVS, it's very like philosophical about the, the trials and tribulations of being a Superman in today's society and how people would view him. And it's all sort of like, you know, it just we've always approached it from a somewhat grounded perspective. And meanwhile, these animated films that seem to do so well with depicting the character and putting him in scenarios that, that people can get behind, you know, in the movies, they don't go for really grounded at all. They have humanistic grounded elements in them, but overall, the, the world that they inhabit are kind of bigger, larger than life, crazy things. You got Lex Luthor walking around in the giant, crazy mech suit. Like they really sort of embrace the comic books, the, uh, the animated films do. So a part of me is just wondering about that. Like, I wonder, almost even as a reaction to Man of Steel, if for the next time we get into Superman, the, the it doesn't feel so realistic. Maybe, may, maybe Superman works best in a situation where giant robot insects roaming the streets is just kind of par for the course in this world that he inhabits. You know what I mean? I just, I don't know if, if, if that made any sense or if I kind of spoke around it too much. But I hope you get the point that I'm just, you know, I, 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 I guess I would be okay with dabbling, with going a little bigger, a little more far-fetched, put him in a world that isn't so grounded in reality and human emotion. And maybe that'll help him fly. You know, may, maybe that'll help the character finally be seen for what he can really be. Because even Superman Returns, you know, I know it ends with him throwing the big, you know, new Krypton island into the sky. But even that, again, like it didn't, you know, it, it felt very much sort of like a grounded experience. You know, the, the world that he inhabited was fairly realistic. Maybe it's time to change that. I don't know. Let me know what you think on Twitter uh, about that idea. Um, and also, you know, watching the movie got me thinking back to, you know, my, my thing. My, you know, my pitch that I brought up a couple episodes ago that uh, some of you, that some of you seem to really take to. And I'm really glad, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, because, you know, I was thinking about it because one of my qualms with this, and it's hard to say it was an issue because it's such an important part of the movie. But 
I kind of feel like we need to evolve past the idea that Lois doesn't know that Clark and Superman are the same person. You know, that sort of thing worked in the 30s and 40s and 50s and so on and so forth. But nowadays, to tell a modern Superman story where Lois has no idea that they're the same, especially like in, in, the, in the Death of Superman movie, he doesn't act terribly different. You know what I mean? He's just not in a Superman suit. He's basically Superman with street clothes and glasses on. It really doesn't seem like this depiction of Clark is trying in any way to mask who he is, aside from putting on glasses and street clothes. So that was kind of like my one thing. You know, and again, I know that it worked for this story. It, was, it, it provided some great dramatic tension. It led to a great moment in the third act towards the end there with the battle for Doomsday. So I get why they did it. But I'm kind of feeling that for the Superman mythology moving forward, any, any new attempts to you know, relaunch it, reboot it, reestablish it, whatever, we have to get past this idea that Lois doesn't know that they're the same person. You know, the, the, we, can, we, we can continue to stretch our, our, our ability to, to believe this far-fetched scenario when it comes to everyone else. It's fine if civilians can't tell. It's fine if Perry White can't tell or Jimmy Olsen or other you know, humanoid characters in the story because they're not as close to Superman. But Lois, who is his, you know, his absolute closest companion in this world, who he spends all his time with, you know, the, he dates her, he works with her, he saves her all the time. There's, you know, we can't have her also not knowing the truth. So that's why, like, you know, just to circle back to my old pitch idea, you know, I kind of glossed over the Superman, the, the Clark and Lois dynamic, whether that I would want sort of for my version of the mythology, for my new take, for my new Superman movie. Um, and, you know, so I mentioned in that pitch that, you know, she would be looking into all these stories of, of, of the guardian angel who's helping people all around, you know, middle America. And she's been maybe hot on his trail now for a year. And at first she sees it as a puff piece, as this fluffy nonsense that she's almost resentful that Perry has sent her on. And as the more she discovers, the more she interviews people, the more she realizes this is real. Um, you know, she, she, she buys into it and she starts really, it becomes like this very important seminal, like her career is made on these stories all of a sudden. And then one day she shows up to one of the scenes of the latest sighting of the blur. And there's some guy there taking pictures and jotting down notes. And she walks over and is basically like, hey, this is my story. Get out of here. What are you trying to do? Trying to mooch on my story. And when he turns around, it's Clark. And of course, we, the audience members, know, oh, wow, that's, oh, this is kind of funny. Oh, this is cool. And basically what it is, is it's Clark trying to get a closer look at what, you know, how much she knows, how much she doesn't know. And it be, kind of begins this flirtation, this like cat and mouse, where she just views Clark as this pest who's there to steal her story. And maybe through their first few encounters, there's this like, you know, this rivalry there. There's kind of a flirtation, but mainly a rivalry because Lois doesn't like that this guy is coming in and trying to swoop in on her big story. And, you know, long story short, you know, eventually she figures it out. 
she's able to connect the dots. Maybe somebody takes a blurry cell phone picture of this blurry guardian angel that pops up from time to time to save lives, but something, or maybe she's even able to do like what happens in like true crime stories where, you know, FBI and CIA experts are able to triangulate where the hero or where the killer in the you know, in real in the real world comes from you know like so sometimes if someone perpetuates a bunch of crimes there's all these great ways of entering those statistics into an online map and it shows the most likely place where the perpetrator lives they, they, they recently used this sort of technology while trying to find the golden state killer out in california so there's real world technology there's a real algorithm there's a real science to this so maybe Lois, you know, who's got connections through her father and so on and so forth, she's able to more or less find that the going theory is that this person comes from Smallville. And while there is when she discovers that this Clark Kent guy who she's been dealing with also lives in Smallville. And she puts it together that this is him. This is the blur. This is the guardian angel. And then it'll be interesting. It'll, it'll provide some interesting tension. Maybe that by now there's some romance mixed in where we kind of get to see Lois make the decision to keep that secret. And that's, that's sort of where the Clark and Lois relationship really blossoms and really takes shape. And then before the big move to Smallville, she's the one who helps him come up with the Clark Kent alter ego. Because maybe we could even have fun with it. Maybe, you know, she could even point out that like, you know, you're not really good at disguising who you are because now, you know, now that I see, now, now, now that I see you in person and now that I, you know, I, I really see, it, you know, you're not, you know, we need to come up with an alter ego for you. And as has been done in other comic book storylines in the past too, you know, we have Lois help shape who this Clark Kent alter ego is. So when they go to Metropolis, it's easier for him to disguise himself and it's easier for her to kind of help him live this double life because she's helped him shape it to a certain extent. And that means that Clark has to be different than Superman. I, I'm, not I'm, I'm not suggesting we do the, the Donner thing with like the clumsy Clark, but they have to find a way to make him look and feel different from slouching, from cloudy, you know, from cloudy reading glasses that really dampen the, the, the bright blue of his eyes to like a ruffled hairstyle to whatever. Like, you know, they, they really kind of, you know, I, I hope that for the next, you know, the next iteration, Clark is not just Superman with glasses because it's important that Clark seems very different in order for us to keep this illusion going that people just can't tell they're the same person, you know? Um... But I digress. That was kind of my uh, just wanted to revisit that Superman pitch because I've got a lot more ideas for it. And I don't know really what to do with them, if I should write them out or if I should do like a long form video dedicated to just me walking you through my ideal Superman story. But, uh, you know, you guys can let me know, you know, how much more of that you want to hear. OK. Um, and before I wrap up, I just kind of want to put on your radar I uh, remember about, I don't know, maybe two months ago on this very show, I dropped a hint about some cool stuff I had discovered about Joaquin Phoenix's Joker movie that I was not going to share with you. And I'm still not going to, uh, because really it's not so much a scoop as it is just like a pretty major spoiler about the movie. And that's why, you know, I don't like spoiler scoops. And uh, anyway, I bring this up. Because I kind of get the sense that it's going to come out soon. 
it's, uh, I don't know, you know, sometimes it feels like any minute now, but who knows, it could take a week or two, I don't know. But some of the stuff that's starting to come out with the spy pick, some of the stuff that I hear being discussed in, you know, in, in, in the DMs of Twitter, where, you know, bloggers get together and talk about, hey, did you hear this? This is crazy. Um, you know, I just kind of get the sense that that surprise that I was trying to protect for you uh, might come out pretty soon. So just kind of be ready for that. Uh, if you don't want it spoiled for you, I strongly suggest you avoid any and all Joker-related articles and leaked set videos and whatever uh, for the time being. Because, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so something I saw this week made me feel like, uh-oh, okay, it's coming. Someone's going to blow the big surprise. So, oh well, I tried. Um, and I'm still kind of on the fence, too, as to whether or not I should try to beat them to it. And, you know, since I have known about it for a few months and maybe I can present it to you in a way that somewhat preserves the surprise. But I know that no one else has that damn discipline. <laughs> this isn't my, it's not me tooting my own horn, but I just know how it is. Whenever I've like carefully tried to put some information out there with all kinds of background information and I couch it in certain careful, meticulous ways, other sites just strip it of all the nuance and just make a headline that goes, here's the thing. And it's like, ugh. so I'm kind of still on the fence as to whether or not I should be the one to break the story. But um, for now, my answer is no. I want to hang on to it just in case it somehow doesn't get out. But either way, I just kind of wanted to put that on your radars. Um, and something else to consider before you before we sign off this week is, you know, I always kind of tell you guys to try to be nice to each other out there, to try to not get into needless arguments and, and get into weird tribalistic fights where, you know, oh, I, I belong to this fandom and you belong to that fandom. And blah, 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 blah. I always tell you that from more of just a humanistic standpoint, but there's a more like very logistical reason that you guys should be avoiding online fights. Because it's not just a conspiracy theory, folks. There are indeed a lot of fake sock puppet bot accounts out there that are just trying to stir things up. And I don't know if you guys have read about it. You know, it came out like a month ago, and I think it kind of got swept under the rug when there was like a study done into the amount of like Russian bots that sprung up after The Last Jedi to try to create like civil unrest on Twitter to get people fighting and it got oddly political and strange. Um, this is all real stuff, okay? I've been talking about it with people. This is all real stuff. And more than ever, it's very important that we don't feed the trolls. If someone seems to be trying to lure you into, into a fight, if you find yourself having some sort of crazy argument about something that really at the end of the day doesn't matter, A, don't do it just for your own sanity, but B, don't do it because there might be nefarious reasons behind it. And I know it may sound silly. Why would someone start a fanboy flame war uh, as part of a, you know, a covert international espionage reasons? But it's really not that crazy. It's really, it's, it's not, uh, it's not far-fetched at all. Because the way that people create power, the way that people create civil unrest, the way that they're able to topple an empire is to divide and conquer all the people, 
to get us all bickering and fighting amongst ourselves so that we're too busy to put up a fight when the real threat shows its head. So if I'm busy hating you over some opinion you have about a movie, then chances are it's going to be a lot harder for me to unite with you against a common cause. So right now they're trying to create civil unrest and civil uh, discourse. No, uh, I don't know. Civil unrest uh, on Twitter because they know right now, especially in America, our obsession with pop culture and celebrities and movies and all this sort of stuff is so astronomically high. Our priorities, by the way, are very interesting in this country. The way we care so much about what celebrity is dating whom. And oh, Ariana Grande and that guy broke up. Let's have 80 headlines about that. Like We're so easily distracted that it's easy to create these conflicts where you have people at each other's throats obsessing and fighting about things that really don't matter. And that stuff all works for the people who are trying to, you know, arrange the world in a particular way. Because the more distracted, the, 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 the more involved in some needless fight you are, the less likely you are to fight the actual battles that need to be fought. So just keep that in mind. Because this stuff where people are just trying to stir things up to create distractions, it's very much a real thing. So just be on the lookout for that. And in general, find other ways to invest your energy and your time and your passion. Mute people, block people. Don't go around being, you know, just fighting with others and allowing others to get under your skin. Especially when at the end of the day, it's about stuff that doesn't really matter. All right? So love what you love. Don't hate what you don't. Life is chaos. Be kind. I'll see you next week. Thank you.